Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you all so much for watching or listening. My name is Matt. If you want to hit the like or subscribe button, that would be awesome. And I'm also going to ask that everybody leave me a review wherever you listen to this podcast and it would help me out greatly. Happy to be back and uh, excited to talk about the topic we have here today because we're going to get into Amian Therapeutics and the recent advisory committee they just had. Uh, very exciting stuff, and really the overall market had a really nice bounce. It looked very scary there for a bit that the XBI was going to crater to the Earth's core, but we had a nice bounce. A lot of the companies we invested in uh, are looking pretty good right now. So we're going to touch on a few smaller news stories related to the biotech sector, and then we're going to talk about the top story, which is Amian Therapeutics and the advisory committee on their new therapy for peanut allergy, Palforzia. So with that, let's just jump right into it. And there's been a lot of uh, exciting stuff that happened this weekend, actually, relating to global macroeconomic news, because Saudi Arabia oil facilities were hit with drone bombs in these cities, Abqaiq and Kuras, I'm thinking that's how you say it. So this led to a temporary shutdown in half of Saudi Arabia's oil output. And this is going to have a very significant effect on the oil markets. And I think the Saudi Arabia stock market is not doing too well given this news. So this is definitely going to affect us on uh, open on Monday. And we're going to see it in the futures on, on Sunday afternoon. But I thought I'd just mention that this happened and there's going to be a real dramatic open on, uh, on Monday, regardless of anything else that's gone on. But I wanted to touch on some of the older things that happened, too. And we heard that Trump delayed tariffs by two weeks and also signaled willingness to do an interim trade deal with China. And so this always annoys people because the market might have a, a certain direction that it seems like it's going, and then Trump out of nowhere will just tweet something, and it completely shifts everything. And what this really shows to me is that he needs a win in this trade deal arena before his 2020 re-election campaign. So it looks like Trump's going to play this good guy, bad guy scenario where if China doesn't do what he likes, he's going to turn around and increase tariffs right away or move up the date. And then when he's trying to appease China and try and bring them along, he's going to make these concessions and these goodwill gestures to try and help facilitate getting a trade deal. So I'm still reluctant to admit that a trade deal is going to get done before the 2020 federal election in the United States. But it seems like Trump is going to try and spin something off as a success in this department. So keep an eye out for that. I, uh, I think trade tensions are going to increase in the next month or so because this is the nice cycle that we like to do. So definitely have some sort of hedges on in case that happens. The last thing I wanted to touch on in terms of global macroeconomics is that the European Central Bank announced last week that they're going to start buying bonds again in an effort to stimulate the European economy. Now, we don't know if this is going to actually be instituted very long because the new president, Christine Lagarde, is going to start in November. So Europe has been stagnating for quite a while, and it looks like even with the efforts of the ECB to promote economic activity, it's still not had a big effect. So it seems like when the new president gets in, anything can happen. So something to keep in mind. But I thought I would mention this because we did see a big bond sell off in the US economy in the last week. So I'm going to leave it at that and get into more exciting stuff, which is the biotech sector. So a few little stories I wanted to mention are that Global Blood Therapeutics received priority review from the FDA for the approval of Voxolator in sickle cell disease. So this is great news for them. They, basically what it means is that the review date is going to be moved up about four to six months. I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but basically the PDUFA date is now set for February 26th of 2020, and they mentioned that there's no plan for an advisory committee. 
And of course, we have heard this before with Ameren, where the FDA said that there was no plan for an advisory committee, and then about a month before the PDUFA date, they said that there was an advisory committee. So if that does happen again with Global Blood, I'm going to look at it as an opportunity to pick up more shares, but uh, I think they're going to have no problem getting approval. Related to Ameren, since I already brought it up, I thought I would mention that there was no update on the PDUFA date, and I'm mentioning this because we heard that there's an advisory committee announcement that came after the original PDUFA date. So we're still going to see whether or not that gets revised, and we have not heard an update yet. But we did hear that the Department of Health and Human Services published the official notice of the advisory committee for Vasipa, Ameren's drug, and that's going to take place on November 14th, 2019, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Maryland. And I thought I would mention here that a lot of people took note of on Twitter, and I would just I wanted to expand on this a little bit. But basically, the committee is going to discuss the supplemental NDA for Vasipa, sponsored by Ameren, for the proposed indication to reduce the cardiovascular events as an adjunct to statin therapy in adult patients with elevated triglycerides, 135 milligrams per deciliter or greater. Now, the important part here is the last one, which is they're looking for a broad label that includes patients that have a triglyceride level of 135 milligrams per deciliter or greater. Now, this took people by surprise because, and there, there's some confusion around this, but it seemed like the original cutoff was like 200 milligrams per deciliter, then that got moved down to 150, and now we find out that they're going to look at 135 milligrams per deciliter or greater triglycerides for patients that might be inclusive in the group that could be treated for Vasipa. So the advisory committee is going to decide whether or not they would support a broad label like that. And really what we have to think about is, you know, is 135 too broad or too ambitious for that label? I think the advisory committees, they're, they're not just a yes or no. They're going to be able to decide on the questions that they ask and answer. The way, I, the way I picture this happening is that they're going to ask maybe three different questions, and they're going to say, you know, do they support approval for a label that includes patients that have 200 or higher, 150 or higher, or 135 or higher? And I'm glad to see that Ameren was ambitious here because the data that they presented does support approval for patients that have triglycerides of 135 mg per deciliter or greater. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But I did also want to mention that 71 million Americans have triglycerides of 135 or higher, and 15 million of those are currently being treated with statins. So this is a huge market. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the data itself actually does support this. And I'll draw your attention to this supplemental figure I pulled from the New England Journal of Medicine article on the Reduce It study. And basically, they triaged patients post-hoc. And I know post-hoc is bad, you shouldn't do that, but you know the advisory committee is going to look at this. So basically what we have here is the partitioning of patients between those that have a triglyceride level of 150 milligrams per deciliter or greater, and those that have 150 milligrams per deciliter or lower. And what we see here is that there's no difference between these two patient populations in the improvements that they see when they're being treated with a vasipa. So the hazard ratio for both of these patient populations is 0.71 or 0.7, and there's no difference between the two of them. However, they are significantly different from the placebo. So really, I'm glad that Ameren did this because the data that they're going to present, that the advisory committee is going to look at, supports approval for patients that have a triglyceride level of under 150 mg per deciliter. And they even mentioned in the discussion that this suggests that the mechanism might not exclusively have to do with the triglyceride level in the blood. 
So that's a discussion point that the advisory committee is definitely going to have, but I think they should see a broad label, and that's really going to be the determination on how high the stock goes once it's approved. But I'm really looking forward to this uh, advisory committee. It's going to be a really good one. So I'll leave it at that, and let's move on because Faith Therapeutics did an offering of $141 million, and I wanted to just touch on this briefly because I did expect an offering to come from Faith, and we got a little bit of insight here into what they're gonna use the money for. And the one thing of note is the expansion of its GMP compliant manufacturing operations, which is good. And they're also going to use this money to fund clinical product candidates. And uh, this is good news. So I think Fate's not really a buy right now. I'm gonna wait until early 2020 and reevaluate them. Moving on, I wanted to also talk about Biogen because we heard this week that they discontinued their Ellen Bezostat Phase 3 studies. And the press release reads, Biogen announced the decision to discontinue the Phase 3 clinical studies Mission 81 and 82 on the investigational oral base beta amyloid cleaving enzyme inhibitor Ellen Bezostat in patients with early Alzheimer's disease. So this is great news for Biogen because if you remember the video I did maybe about six months ago, I laid out the bull and bear case and one of the bear case points I had was that their pipeline was full of Alzheimer's drugs that have a very high chance of failure. So them cutting Ellen Bezostat is great because they're going to be able to repurpose those resources towards candidates that have a better chance of approval and helping patients. And also we're realizing that amyloid beta isn't a viable target to treat for Alzheimer's disease. And we see here that they're going to continue to pursue their anti-tau antibodies in there and figure out whether or not they have a chance of helping Alzheimer's disease. But the amyloid beta area doesn't seem like it's viable. And they also mentioned in the press release that band 2401 will continue to be evaluated in phase three. And there is some confusion on whether or not Biogen and Esai are both still collaborating on this or whether or not it's just Esai. And I haven't been able to figure out a clear answer yet, but I do think that the phase three trial of band 2401 will fail. So, you know, in about a year, I think we might, we might see a readout of that if there's no futility analysis, but I think that it will fail and I'm gonna try to short um, ESI or Biogen, but I gotta, I gotta figure out these details before I do any of that. So this is good news for Biogen. It'll be good to see them repurpose those resources towards better quality candidates. And it's unfortunate that they spent so much money on these drugs that have not been able to improve Alzheimer's disease, but at least we know now that it's not a viable strategy. So moving on to the top story of today, which is the Amune Therapeutics Advisory Committee. And for those who don't know, Amune Therapeutics is looking at treating food allergies by using oral immunotherapies. So basically the way this works is they take patients with some kind of food allergy, they give them small doses, small but increasing doses of that allergen, such that the patient is gonna be desensitized to that allergen so that the chance of accidental exposure isn't gonna to lead to anaphylactic shock like it would normally if they weren't desensitized. So the, they have a number of programs, but the one that they're seeking the current NDA for is peanut allergy. And it was announced by the FDA they're gonna have an advisory committee and that took place on September 13th of 2019. The documents that the advisory committee prepared were released on Wednesday, September 11th, and then they voted on September 13th. And the major purpose of this advisory committee is as follows. The committee will be asked whether the efficacy and safety data support licensure of Palforzia, which was AR-101, as a treatment to reduce the incidence and severity of allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis after accidental exposure to peanut in patients 4 through 17 years of age 
with confirmed diagnosis of peanut allergy. So the documents themselves, I looked through them on Wednesday when they were released, and they provided very minimal insight into which way the committee was leaning. And usually when you read through the documents, you can get a sense of whether or not the committee is leaning one way or another. But really here, I thought they gave a very balanced analysis of both the safety and the efficacy data. And the one quote I want to read from the documents made me convinced a little bit that, uh, that they were going to suggest approval. And that's because you could tell the committee members really understood the benefit of the therapy. And I'll read this quote, and I think they, they alluded to this two or three times in the documents, and that really suggested to me that they're probably going to approve. But, of course, I did put a hedge on before the vote happened, and uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the quote I want to read is here. Adverse events related to subject-reported accidental food allergen exposures decreased from 11.5% during updosing to 9% during maintenance in the Palforzia treatment group, further suggesting that Palforzia protects against allergic reactions following accidental exposure. The placebo group did not change at 19% during updosing to 20.3% during maintenance. Now, I wrote down three reasons why I think this is significant. The first is that fewer accidental exposures in the Palforzia group compared to placebo were noted. So we see here that there's a benefit of being on Palforzia because you get about a halving of the number of accidental food allergen exposures. The second thing is that accidental exposures decreased after the updosing phase. So we see here that there's a difference between the updosing and the maintenance at 11.5 to 9%. And you might think that 2.5% decrease isn't that substantial, but you have to remember that the number of accidental exposures is relatively small. So this 2.5% decrease is noteworthy, I think, and the advisory committee acknowledged that. The last thing is that this shows that there's, this is a real-world influence that Palforzia has for patients. And we see increasingly that both the FDA and, you know, it trickles down to the advisory committee members, they want to see clinical outcomes and a clinical benefit to people in their daily living. And when we see here that the advisory committee acknowledged that there's a real-life example here of a benefit of Palforzia, this kind of suggested to me that they really understand the treatment and that they're willing to support approval. So that was just a little thing that I took note of. Definitely the safety issues of Palforzia had me a little bit concerned that they might vote against it in terms of safety, and that's the reason why I put on the hedge that I did. And for the meeting itself, I was following this SAC tracker person on Twitter. You can follow them at FDA Adcom with two M's, and they're really great, and I think that anybody who's curious about advisory committee meetings the day of should follow this person because they are truly awesome and doing a great job at uh, feeding that info into all of us. So the proposed indication for the advisory committee meeting is this. Palforzia is indicated as a treatment to reduce the incidence and severity of allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis after accidental exposure, and so forth and so forth. Palforzia is not intended for the immediate relief of allergic symptoms, and Palforzia is to be used in conjunction with a peanut avoidant diet. And we know this because Palforzia won't protect against patients if they go above that 600 milligram dose that they're supposed to be protected against with the treatment. So the efficacy summary here, they looked at the ARC001 trial, and they said that the pre-specified efficacy success criterion for the phase 3 study was met for subjects 4 to 17 years of age, and this was the proportion of subjects who tolerate at least 600 milligrams of peanut protein with no more than mild symptoms at the exit food challenge. 
and also that the pre-specified success criterion was demonstrated if the lower bound of the corresponding 95% confidence interval was greater than 15%. And then they have here that the proportion of subjects who tolerate that level of peanut protein was 63.2%, with the lower bound of the confidence interval being 53%. So not only is there a large proportion of patients that get this desensitization, but also the confidence interval is so high that there is a real treatment impact. Next, they moved on to the safety summary, and they acknowledge here that palforzia-treated patients had an increased systemic allergic reactions, increased epinephrine use, increased discontinuations due to adverse events, and increased reports of eosinophilic esophagitis. And now, you know, there's no question that there's an increase in these. I don't think it's it merits them denying the drug. And, um, you know, a lot of these things, I think if they're explained to the patient clearly, that they can be overcome. And they do this with the REMS designation that they talk about later, and I'm going to touch on that. And then they also mention that f the frequency of the adverse events, discontinuations, and systemic reactions, and epinephrine use decreased during the maintenance phase. So a lot of these issues that occurred were much earlier in the treatment, and I think this is a good thing because it'll set patients' worries at ease because I think that the side effects are only going to last during the updosing. They can rest assured that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel once they get to the maintenance phase. They also discussed here that the onset is very short-term and that these go away after about four hours, really after about two hours, but after around two to four hours especially, the symptoms tend to subside. So that's also something they discussed. And then when it got to the actual vote, uh, here's the question that they were asked. Are the available efficacy data adequate to support the use of palforzia as a treatment to reduce the incidence and severity of allergic reaction, including anaphylaxis, after accidental exposure to peanut in patients aged 4 to 17 years with a confirmed diagnosis of peanut allergy? 7 voted yes, 2 voted no, and 0 abstained. The two no's were Andrea After and John Kelso. And these are both physicians who work in the, the area of allergy. And uh, John Kelso specifically has been very vocal against this therapy, saying that both the safety and the efficacy don't merit approval. And so with that, let's just get to the second question because this is the safety one. And this, is gonna, this gets into the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, the REMS here. And the question was based around this. And it reads, as part of the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, the agency will require the following to mitigate the risks of systemic allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis due to palforzia. 1. Documentation that any patient prescribed palforzia has a valid prescription for injectable epinephrine. 2. Caregivers must attest to carrying injectable epinephrine while on palforzia. And 3. Initial dose escalation and the first dose of each updosing level must be administered in a certified facility capable of treating systemic allergic reactions. Makes sense, I think. And then the question is, are the available safety data in conjunction with these additional safeguards adequate to support the use of palforzia in patients aged 4 to 17 years with a confirmed diagnosis of peanut allergy? 8 voted yes, 1 voted no, and 0 abstained. So John Kelso was the one person who voted no here again, and uh, he just seems like one of those old school kind of guys that doesn't want to try something new, doesn't see that the safety or efficacy warrant that kind of risk towards patients. I personally disagree with him, and I also disagree with with Derek Chu, who probably sides with John Kelso here, since Derek Chu was the guy who wrote the systemic review against oral immunotherapy in peanut allergy. 
even though I talked about this in one of my previous videos about how I thought this is a, an argument for Amune because they've really gotten rid of the homebrew methods and been able to standardize their protocol to get a consistent efficacy that they've seen in all these patients they've done the analysis in. So with that, I thought I'd talk about a few lessons as well as a couple upcoming catalysts. And the first thing I wanted to touch on is that a lot of pundits are going to downplay the significance of this treatment. And I've seen this a lot on Twitter and everywhere else. They talk about how Amune is basically taking advantage of patients by commercializing just peanut protein, which is available off the shelf today, and jacking up the price as high as it is. But the things that they don't understand with this is that the regulatory environment that pharmaceutical companies are in, as well as biotech, is such that you can't market this product as a viable strategy to treat peanut allergy unless you go through all of these crazy hoops that the FDA installs so that patients are safe. And while I see the reason for the FDA doing that, a lot of people don't see the value that Amune is provided by going through all of these different avenues to come up with a protocol that ensures safety for patients as well as efficacy here. And I think that emphasizing this to these people might shed some light on uh, the benefit that this really does provide to patients. Another thing I wanted to note is that Piper noted that there is 30% short interest on the stock, which should lead to a sharp increase on Monday. And I noticed that after hours, the bid ask was at 29. So we'll see what it opens to on Monday. It should be exciting. Personally, I've been holding Amune for almost two years. And the one thing that I learned from this is that having an exit strategy is very important. I think at the time, my exit strategy was going to be around the release of the phase three data. But because it didn't hit the profit target I wanted, I ended up bag holding for about two years. And I averaged down maybe one, once or twice in that time. But I think that being willing to take profit when you have it is a very useful thing because the money that I had tied up in Amune, I could have put towards more productive uses. The other catalyst to look towards is the PDUFA date, which is going to be in late January 2020. I think the REMS label is now priced in once it opens on Monday. I think the overwhelming positivity of this advisory committee suggests that it's going to get approved. The FDA isn't 100% beholden to the advisory committee, but I do think that the chance that it's going to be approved is very high at this point. The last thing I wanted to mention is that our old friend DBVT still has a market cap that's around half that of Amune. And if you want to think of a play that probably has a higher risk reward ratio, at this point, once it opens on Monday, DBVT might be a better candidate. I think that they might have issues in the efficacy department, but the risks are definitely a lot lower than those of Amune. So from a safety standpoint, they have a higher chance of being approved, but the efficacy might not quite be there. So that's another thing to consider. But I thought I would mention that given all the issues DBVT has had, they still have a market cap around half that of Amune. So it's worth looking into. Personally, I'm going to see where we open on Monday and go from there. I might take some cash off and then wait for the PDUFA date, but it depends how high we're looking on, uh, on Monday. So this week, the one event that's going to be a real market mover is the FOMC meeting, which is going to take place on September 18th. It's tough to know how this latest oil news is going to move the market tomorrow and how that's going to play into the rate change decisions, but the chance of a rate cut is at 78.5%. I think that the FOMC is going to cut by 25% because it has less to do with the U.S. economy and more to do with the world. Having the interest rates where they are right now puts a real strain on the entire world economy, and I think Jay Powell acknowledges that and is going to do a rate cut for that reason. Companies I'm going to look at are still down here, and I did add one, Odonate Therapeutics. 
And I'm not gonna lie, I took this from a Martin Shkreli post, and I'm gonna do a deeper dive to see whether or not they're worth investing at their current value here, but I think the oral taxane might have a real clinical utility here that could really help patients, so I'm gonna look into that. On to a quick portfolio wrap-up though. Nash stocks not doing well still. Amun I have here, it's at 24, but this will change immediately on Monday. And I did sell a call spread as a hedge for my shares, and that's gonna be completely worthless, so I'm gonna lose maybe $70 on this, but it's gonna be offset by the tremendous gains I get from the equity I hold. Otherwise, uh, we saw Boost in Marker without much news, Boost in Amarin, which I think is great buy here, Global Blood increased on, their, on the news of the priority review, and I added to Regenix, and they, they spiked on pretty much no news, so I think Q4 is gonna be great for them, and I added in the last two weeks, and then we also saw that AXGT had an increase in the stock for what seemed like no news. And basically I'm looking at about 5% on the year in line with the IVB. Uh, volatility increased a little bit on Friday, but I think that it's gonna go through the roof as soon as futures open on Sunday, given this uh, oil fiasco we have going on. And with that, I wanna thank everybody for watching and listening. Please hit the like or subscribe button and definitely leave me a review wherever you listen to this and that would help me out a lot. And we'll see you next time.